everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Joining me today are two special friends. First of all, Sonia, and co-founder of Choir, who is going to be co-hosting this show with me today. And our guest, Jamie Hopkins, managing partner of Wealth Solutions at Carson Group and a two-time author, Rewirement, and the latest and greatest, Find Your Freedom. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. And I, I should have paid attention to the emails better. I didn't know Sonia was going to be asking questions too. I thought I was getting away easy and she was just going to answer them all. So, <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. This is part of the fun because she knows you way better. So she can actually get to ask the good questions. <laughs> I'm just here along for the ride. <laughs> so, um, congrats on your new book, first of all, Jamie. But before we get to that, and thank you so much for inviting me on your show last year, it was super fun. Can you tell our audience a little bit about? what you do, the fun things that you do, and your journey of being a two-time author. That's a lot because you pile that onto everything else that you do in your travels and speaking engagements and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, lots of et ceteras nowadays. Uh, so if we talk about fun things, so the most fun thing in my life, without any doubt, are my three kids. Um, it is the one thing that I like. I've gotten a lot better actually on the weekends at just spending time with them and enjoying them. And so they're fantastic. Um, I have my dog Baxter who was in here a little bit earlier. He got some shots today, so he might go lay down somewhere. Uh, and then my wife, Kathy, and we live outside Philly. I love food. So that's another fun thing. I do travel a lot. So I eat out a lot. I don't get to cook as much as I'd like to, but I do cook most weekends and, and try to do something big at least once a weekend. Um, I was a really big runner, but my knee has been pretty bad this year. So like everybody else says, we're, you know, this is the youngest I'll ever be again. And uh, so certain things I can't do anymore as well. And my running's definitely paired back. I still run a couple of times a week, but not like I used to. Uh, yeah, work-wise, got a bunch of fun things going on, but we can get into that later. Those are more of the personal fun things. And so what's your favorite thing to cook? Uh, so right, I'm just going to jump right into yeah. the, the really hard-hitting questions here. Oh, uh, yeah, that's a tough one. So it, it actually, I, I like pastas the most, Sonia, and... Uh, I have one that is what I think I do best, which is a, it's a clam and shrimp pasta that I do. Um, and that's probably the best one that I do. And I, like, I don't always hand cut my pasta, like make it myself, but a lot of times I do. And that one, it turns out super well with that. And it does take a little bit of time, but pasta is definitely my favorite thing. And I do a bunch of variations of things. So, but my son likes that one a lot. He loves clams. And so I've probably made that one, I don't know, 50 times. So I've gotten pretty good at it now. So if I had to go like against like Beat Bobby Flay or one of those shows, that is what I, I would go to now. Um, I, I would roll out that one. And see, if I if I knew we we're going to be talking about food, I totally would have switched the questions around because I love food. <laughs> I do not know how to like hand make pasta that that just seems like a complete next level to me but um yes you know what sonia we should like just get back together on different episode on just food and wine that just yeah. sounds like fun right and have a book next to you i mean food wine book you can't go wrong with that that sounds great <laughs> so yeah that's the best stuff it's just you know food and wine i do like to drink wine while i'm cooking 
and play music. And I have a station that's called French Cooking Music on Pandora. And it's a very relaxing station. I do not know French, so I know very little about what they're singing. But a lot of it is instrumental. It's kind of like post-war jazz, which is a pretty cool era of music. That sounds nice. <laughs> it does sound nice. Um, let's let's talk about your book since we're in a topic of wine and book and wine just seem to go together. Or if we were to do this later, it would have been whiskey. But um, so let's start with your first book, uh, Rewirement. Um, in that you said retirement and complaining takes a different mindset than retirement savings. Um, but switching to a spend, spending mentality can be difficult due to a number of behavioral finance biases and misconceptions. Um, can you can, can we step back a little bit and tell us what was that book about? So Rewirement was all about kind of trying to codify what I viewed as a retirement income process and then identifying a lot of behavioral you know, I don't know if you call them issues, but challenges of switching from working to retirement. And I've probably gotten better at it than the first version of the book. Uh, and even some of the stuff when I go back and read it, you know, you could refine the whole thing at this point. But almost the biggest part about the whole like saving for retirement and then switching into spending in retirement is that for many people, spending ends up feeling like a loss because they were told their whole life, save and see your account grow up. And that is the magic of personal finance and saving as you put money away and it grows over time. And then you get to retirement and we tell them, just kidding, you now have to pull it out every month and see it go down. And so you spend 30, 40 years of your life being told that there's like one core tenant of finance. And then you get to retirement and you have to do the total opposite of that. And so what you see is a lot of people view that as very painful and they struggle to actually like spend what I would just say is appropriate amounts to maintain the, the happiness factor that they want to live with. And that's a huge challenge. There's not a whole lot out there really designed to deal with that still today. And I'd say we're very early on to understanding what does that really mean for people um, in retirement. And, you know, a lot of people do have good retirements. They're happier on average than people who are working. But we actually have more people who are depressed in retirement than in the average population, too. So it's a really interesting thing. So like the top group moves up a lot. So people always talk about retirees being happier than the average. But then you also have a group of people that actually get more depressed than they were before. And that group is actually larger than the general population. But it kind of gets overlooked because we talk about it in averages and enough people go up that they offset the people that are moving down. And so that's a really interesting dynamic. That's so interesting. In my previous work before choir, I was um, I worked at a broker dealer in RIA, and we saw that a lot with clients. And interestingly, I noticed. I wonder if you've noticed this, Jamie. I saw it with financial advisors, maybe even more frequently than clients. Um, both pieces, the sort of the, the hesitation to retire, I think be, um, being worried about not, I don't know, maybe not having this like work purpose anymore. And also because of the, the always wanting to earn, earn, earn and not spend. Um, and it's really interesting that even though we know about these behaviors in our clients, even the professionals 
uh, have the same, you know, have this, some of the same outcomes from those biases. It's They're so hard to break, even if you know them. So what do you, what do you recommend? How do you fix it? Uh, well, this, despite, you know, maybe some popular opinions, advisors are humans too. And they suffer from a lot of the same stuff, right? Like they, they get sad and they find meaning through work. And I'd say advisors are probably more so than a lot of their clients, because I'd say small business owners or business owners probably tend to suffer from that more because it is their labor of love. It's their kid. They refer to it as they've built it up and, and poured weekends and nights back into something that, that they really do feel is theirs, um, which can be different than other jobs where you don't really feel like you owned it in the same sense. And so you see that advisors tend not to retire. They tend to stay around way too long, in my opinion. And then even when you look at people who set up retirement stuff, they kind of stay around the business a little bit, whether they have trails or they come into the office and they don't even really get paid anymore. I mean, I actually do know some advisors that set up the retirement that they still had an office even then, when they weren't getting paid anymore, they could still come in. And so it's really hard to let go of it. I think a couple of things are, though, you also have to think about how do you phase into retirement? And we don't do that super well here in the United States. But like, you know, how can we give people ways to test out retirement without having to fully go into it? I think one of the scary part, though, is in the U.S., especially when you start thinking about the social safety net or lack thereof, is like a cheesecloth. Whereas in other countries, you have a little bit more stability, right? You have pension. And I, I hear a lot of uh, comments from people, actually, I, <laughs> my parents included. One of the reasons why they left the country was because healthcare costs just becomes insurmountable as you get older. And so you factor that in, we're living much longer. And so that nest egg, that, that that nest that you have to spend down, it becomes harder to to plan when you don't know exactly how much you're going to have to spend um, in the future to support yourself. Yeah. And I'd add to that. It's the, um, you know, it's going to be, you know, there's going to be an out, an expense outlay and you don't, the not knowing how much, and it's confusing, like getting all the different pieces of, um, the, what is there of the, you know, social safety net combined with whatever you have personally, um, it, it's a puzzle and it's really, I think it's really confusing for people and, um, it's, it's intimidating if you can just, and I think for some people, if you can keep working, just, you know, that, that solves that. Um, yeah, yeah what do you it's an uncertain dollar amount for an uncertain period of time. And that's what makes it super challenging is it's not just a one factor. Like if you said, hey, an expense is going to come up, but it's an uncertain expense, you can actually insure against that a little bit, right? That there are ways to at least probably mitigate that or pass that off to somebody else. But when you get the uncertain time period too, that makes it you know, I would say exponentially more challenging because we don't know if you need a hundred thousand dollars a year or fifty thousand dollars a year or two hundred thousand dollars a year. 
for five years, 10 years, 20 years, 40 years. And when you run those numbers, right, they're entirely different outcomes then for people. So it is a tremendous amount of uncertainty. And none of us have been through like that type of retirement before. Um, you know, some of us might leave jobs like Sonia, when you finished up, you had some time before you relaunch choir. I know you're working and doing lots of things, but you know, you've had times in between jobs and a lot of people go through that, but it, that's, that's very different than retirement in the sense, like you plan on working again, you continue to make income. And there is a point for many people that they can't continue to work anymore. They can't make any more income off of like their ability to work. So they have to rely on whether it's social security, Medicare, Medicaid, and then their own personal savings. And, you know, it's it, this country has shifted more and more of that onus onto the individual over the last 40 years and less so from, you know, corporations and the government that burden has now become more of an individual burden. Um, and, you know, not all that is shocking. We, we try to push towards a capitalism society and we say that people can save, but they a lot of people don't earn enough to save enough. And that's a fundamental issue that we have in the system today. And then as, you know, social systems like Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security become underfunded or, or reach these breaking, breaking points that are coming up, that's very scary for a lot of people. And that just adds to that whole fear of the unknown. It does. But let's switch gear a little bit because um, you mentioned you mentioned um, Sonia's path and, you know, she finished her last work and then she started quiet, which I'm a huge fan of. And just a slight uh, deviation from, from, from what we're going to talk about, please do check out choir. Um, Sonia and Liv are doing amazing things for the ecosystem to try to bring a little bit of balance to the force. Um, so do, do, do that. Um, they're doing great work there, but back to your book, uh, Jamie, you have recently released a second book, which is one of the reasons why we would like to have you on the show to share with you, to share with our audience. Um, the title of the book is interesting because it got a few words that got me very intrigued. It says, find your freedom, financial planning for a life on purpose. So now we're talking about planning. We're talking about doing something different. We're talking about purpose. First of all, I'm very curious, what prompted you to write again so soon? Because writing a book takes quite a bit of work. And what are some of the takeaways that you would like to share with us? Yeah, it, it does take a bit of work. Um, so I'm going to tell kind of a funny version of this. And I think, Sonia, you might know this, but I like started this book and I probably got about halfway through and I scrapped the whole first version of it. So like, if you have written something, you know how painful that is to like, like I, I had that really tough moment of like, do I just try to finish up this version or do I restart? And I did make the decision to scrap the whole first book. Like, I mean, I was halfway through it and I wrote two textbooks before these and I'll be super honest, like the first version of this book, Find Your Freedom, was going to have a different name. And it was like, it read like a textbook and it was really awful. <laughs> and like, I just like started going back and reading it. And I was like, man, this is really boring. And part of one of the things that I was doing was I was trying to take, I'd say probably more of my academic mindset around planning and codify that into something and building spreadsheets and check checklists 
And some of those things that we use at Carson and put it into a book. And it really just started reading like a textbook. And so when I scrapped it, I kind of did the opposite in the whole first half of the book. I just wrote about more of that, you know, what what does, you know, freedom mean to you? setting values and aspirations and going beyond goals and writing your eulogy, a lot more of the soft aspects, like the first part and the second part says, right? Like what is purpose to you? What does find your freedom mean? And so the whole first half of the book is around that. It's not really about financial planning. And then I tried to build in what I view as kind of a process to get you to those aspirations and that freedom in the second half of the book. But it's not super tactical. I mean, like somebody asked me recently, like, do I have a lot of tax planning tips in there? And I'm like, it's really not. I would say it's more of the planning promise, less so than, you know, here's a good way to do backdoor Roth conversions. It's much more, you know, that taxes are important and, you know, you should be looking at tax planning and college planning and then like ways to prioritize that versus other aspects of your life. So it, it's a little bit different. Uh, there's not a lot of financial planning books out there, actually, even a lot of books that I, you know, people bring up when I ask them that they really are investment books. So that's, you know, I think that's one difference of the book, too, is it really is planning. I think I have one chapter on investments and it's more value based investing versus like how to time market or pick different investments. It's about aligning your values to your investments. How come you chose this topic, um, the the freedom topic and the purpose topic? What made you go that direction besides besides the textbook <laughs> route being boring? <laughs> well, so actually, there's a you know we we use that term a lot at Carson. So that's one thing, right? It's like part of my work and it's part of my job. And we're, we're trying to live that is help people find their freedom. I think an interesting part of it though, actually came from a conversation with Ron and I, and there's a little bit of that, I guess, dichotomy in the book. And uh, is that Ron's actually gotten to a point in his life where he feels really free. He's made a lot of money, worked for, you know, I mean, since 1983 in this industry, and, you know, he's on a different part of his journey now where he is mostly spending time today now with charities. I mean, he's, you know, still CEO and founder, but he doesn't really run the day-to-day -day business like even when I joined five years ago, right? He stepped very much into a different role as a, you know, kind of visionary for the company and his charitable work. And I do not feel that way at all. So this does come out in the book, like I don't rate myself super high on freedom today. Um, I know what it means to me. And I actually thought that that was important to write a book that wasn't all about somebody who was at the end of the journey. Um, but you have a little bit of that from Ron. And then it's kind of my journey where I am. And my, you know, my dad passing away is super early in the book. And some of the, you know, things that I learned or experienced from my family's behavior around money that shaped my relationship. And I just kind of tried to put all that down. And I think part of it is to give people permission that where your story came from is okay too. And if you want to define it differently, that's all right. And you don't have to feel free like a Ron does. You can feel totally like I'm worried about, you know, like we just talked about, I'm worried about my retirement. I'm worried about paying rent. And if you can't get 
past those parts, you're not going to get all the way to this, you know, uh, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of need, self-enlightenment and freedom at the top. It doesn't need mean you need to be, you know, have a hundred million dollars, but it does mean you need to understand what that process is so you can feel secure in your life. And so in the process of writing the book, were you able to define for yourself what freedom means to you? And if so, do you want to share it? Yeah, so I have to find it and you know, at least the one I, I can say this one easily, which is the freedom to me is being able to wake up and define my day right? Like that's what freedom means to me. Now, I think having heard other people, so I have like six or seven like freedom vignettes at the end of the book. Um, you know, Jack Campbell's is the one though that that probably made me question whether mine's actually accurate yet. She has a really beautiful one. And it's similar in that sense of being able to control things and do what you want when you want. But then she's got like the, and with like those that you love, like being able to do what you want, where you want, when you want, but with the people that you love. And when I read that one, I was like, man, mine's probably not 100% accurate because it's probably not just getting to define my day. It's probably getting to define my day to do what I want with the people that I love, right? Like that is, um, so when you go through something like this, you learn from others. And uh, I thought that's one that stuck out to me just from, you know, her impact on me from writing hers in there. So that's probably mine now is adding that part to it. Uh, but writing the book's been really interesting in another sense. Um, so my mom's super integral in my life and in the book. And, you know, my dad passed away when I was eight and, you know, she she raised us and ran a successful business later on. And uh, we've had lots of conversations and not all of them have been super positive about the book. And part of it is, one, I don't think anyone likes their life stories out there, right? So like, there's like, you know, when I'm talking about my dad dying, my mom probably doesn't really love the fact that I'm putting that into a book that like, you know, now tens of thousands of people have read. And I also talk about things like gifting around the holidays. And when I read the audio book, I knew that she wasn't going to like that one. I didn't think about it when I wrote it. But when I read it out loud, I was like, man, my aunt and my grandmother and my mom are not going to be happy. <laughs> And I, I talk about how, like, I don't really love gifting. And, you know, but my mom and my aunt, Patricia, who passed away in November, and my grandmother um, all love gifting. Like, that's their love language. But to me, it came from, like, I felt more pain around it because I had this, like, fear of running out of money as a kid after my dad passed away. Now, my mom obviously had more insight into what she could give. Uh, so she didn't have the same experience and my dad passing away wasn't her like original money memory and i like that's something we got out of conversing around recently too was you know my kind of first money memories are my dad passing away and that fear of you know the family and its finances but that wasn't my mom's first one now that's a super right. important memory to her but it didn't change the way that she viewed money right she had uh, she was already on a she was already an adult with like a like a fairly uh, yeah probably not cemented but like fairly formed context and ideas of thinking about money. I, that's a really interesting nuance there. Yeah, and like I had I never thought because like we went through the same event but had incredibly different experiences as it related to money from the same event, right? 
um, which is super interesting. And I didn't know that till I wrote the book. That's a conversation that occurred when my mom read the book <laughs> afterwards. Um, but it's been really, there's been a couple of those with my mom that have been really interesting to dive into. Uh, but you know, like the gifting stuff I already knew, like, I know that she loves it. And I talked about that in the book and like, that's okay. But for me, it formed a different relationship with money around gifting at Christmas that like, I, I view a lot of that as like ex- excessive and putting families at risk. And she does not view it that way at all. Right. Like it's just a completely different experience and view on it. And yeah. I have no idea what I was answering anymore, but that is that is a really interesting part for me that came out of this. <laughs> it, I don't I don't remember what I asked either, but it actually brings me you actually brought up one of the things that I wanted to talk about. Um, like the thing that I really wanted to ask you about when Theo um, asked if I would join as a host here. Um, and you've written about how your own drive towards financial planning comes from that place of trauma and scarcity. And the, the book does talk about the story, your, your story that you mentioned of your dad dying while, when you were young and how that um, formed a lot of your context around money and, um, and people should, people should go read the book and, and uh, get, get that full context. But I'm curious, you know, since you work with a bunch of financial advisors and I I used to, and still I'm sort of in that circle. I'm curious if you have a sense of whether that sort of scarcity and trauma mindset is a common driver for many planners. Um, I really do see both. I see people come from a scarcity mindset and because I asked that question, I mean, I, I don't know what I'm at, 250 podcast episodes, and we ask about that first money memory and all of them. And I would say it, it's a bit mixed, um, but there's a lot of people where the first money memory is a scarcity or trauma money memory. And then for a lot of other people, it is something I'd say more in the either a gift or their first job. And those tend to be like, from what I've gathered have been like the three really formative ones that people tend to go through. I'm sure that there's other categories, but like from my interviews and conversing with people, they tend to fall into those three. And it does very much, you know, change the way somebody behaves. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, even if they came from money, were driven by some scarcity mentality which is interesting because you can still have that and actually come from like a middle class or above middle class family. Like it, it is not actually based on if you had actual scarcity, you're a six year old or an eight year old. Did you feel that you had scarcity for some reason? Um, Cause I remember one story that somebody told me and you know, their parents were just super strict with money. So their assumption was they didn't have money because they couldn't spend it. Right. Like if they went to the grocery store, it was always, no, you can't buy the candy, et cetera. So I remember him telling me like he always felt super poor because he didn't have discretionary money, but they lived in a nice house and he didn't really understand it. The parents were just very frugal, but they were very well off. So then like his story was becoming an entrepreneur and building multiple businesses so he could buy stuff. Like, I mean, that was literally like, he's like, I wanted to know that I had income from a bunch of places, so I didn't have to like hold all my money. And like, that's an interesting version of it too. And I'd say advisors, um, you know, I think they come from all different paths, but 
I do think a lot of people with a, a scarcity background, if they can, you know, get the opportunities, there's probably an extra drive that that people have from that is what I've seen. What was your first money memory, Sonia? Because I remember mine, um, and and Jamie, I remember you asked me this last year. It was when I was little, and we still had piggy banks. And mine was a special metal piggy bank. I think it was brass from the bank. That was the time when we all still used to go to the branches. And uh, for Chinese New Year, we would get a little red envelope money as a a well-wish and good luck and good fortune. And I remember I used to ask my mom, I said, can I have coins instead of paper money? Now, of course, now thinking back, duh, that is silly because why would I want a dollar coin versus a $10 bill? But that's besides the point because I loved my little piggy bank and I would put coins in there and I loved the sound of it. Um, that was my first money memory. Um, I actually forgot about that until you asked me that last year. So Jamie, um, what about you, Sonia? What was your first one? Yeah, I'm happy to share my first one. It's kind of silly, but um, not first, but an early one. Similar to your sale is that I had a, like, I got to open my own bank account when I was pretty, pretty young. I don't remember, but um, it was again, back, back when you used to go to the physical branch and I had one of those, uh, like a pack passbook or I can't remember what it's called, but it was like a little, looked like a passport kind of. And they would, they would write in there or stamp in there what your balance was kind of like a checkbook. Um, and I kept that thing that was like a treasured possession for me. And I would, if, you know, I was gifted $5 for a holiday or something, I would go with my dad up to the bank and go deposit it. And I loved just like watching that number go up and up. I wish I still, I wish I still had it actually. <laughs> I don't know what happened to it, but it was, it was my like very treasured little book. Um, but my first money memory is, is a funny one. I, uh, and I think I told this story on Jamie's podcast too. Um, I got an allowance when I was a kid, um, not not very much coins, something. And I, one year, really wanted to save up for one of those miniature Christmas trees. I don't know why, um, but it like one of the ones that comes like pre-decorated and is very small, comes in like a pot. Um, clearly, the, like my love for plants started very early. <laughs> um and I did the math of, you know, how many weeks of allowance, how many weeks until Christmas. And I realized I wasn't going to have enough like this. I think it costs like $14 or something. I'm not sure how I remember that, but I, but I do. And I realized there was no way I was going to make it. And so I tried to get my brother to co-invest with me, my younger brother, right? And so I had him start contributing his allowance to my tiny little Tupperware where I kept my coins. And I was like, all right, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. And then one day he must have realized that this, that he was, you know, investing towards something he did not actually want. And he wanted his money back. And I was so mad. <laughs> so, so mad. And I, I, 
I actually don't remember the resolution. I, I think I probably did give his money back. I'm sure he would have gone to my parents and not, they would have made me, um, realizing that I had swindled him. And I did get the... Um, I did get the Christmas tree though. So I don't know if I, my parent, maybe my parents gave me some jobs to do to earn some extra money. Cause I got it, kept it, loved it, planted it in the backyard and it grew to be this enormous tree that was sort of um, like not great in the, in the yard. And I don't know, something like maybe 15 years later it had to be cut down because it had grown into this enormous tree that was not an appropriate tree for the location. So um, it was, you know, on on whole, good good investment, good very high ROI, and my brother really should have co invested with me. Still, still give him give him grief about it. You should have told him that's like you know you're gonna give him a fractional share of the tree. There you go. He right. Could have decorated his portion. Exactly. It was, <laughs> and you had lumber later on, right? So like it was really good. So actually, I I went and found this recently, but so I still have my very first, this was oh. my very first piggy bank that I ever had as a kid. And it still has the same coins in there. So like, I have had this my entire life, and I still have it. So I have like a, I have a trunk of things so people won't be able to see it, but it actually says mad money on it, which I think is kind of funny with a little treasure chest. But yeah, I went and found that recently. And uh, I have a little of stuff that sits in this my room now i will slowly give those coins to my kids my daughter lost one of her teeth and there was like a 1972 uh, silver dollar so i gave her that one and like a five dollar bill and she's like similar to you Theo. like she didn't care about the five dollar bill she's like just this is a very special coin daddy and the tooth fairy gave me this special coin so she's way more into that <laughs> Aww. Well, I mean, and, and it's special, right? That's all that it matters is, is the, the value of it is not the actual value is, is the perceived value or there's got to be a technical name for it. Clearly, I'm not a financial planner, but um, personal value, something special. Um, so anyway, but Jamie, I want to go back to one of the points you said earlier, because I found myself nodding my head. It's 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 about you were saying what you wrote and how you wrote your second book gave people permission to to think about their own journey. Cause that that's something I, I feel very strongly about, um, especially with the economy the way it is. And and you see tons of advice articles out there that says, well, you know, regardless of how tough the economy is, you still need to put money. And your 401k, you still need to take advantage of maxing it out, et cetera, et cetera. The unfortunate truth is a lot of Americans do not have access to a 401k. A lot of people can't even afford it. Yes, it's a great idea. But if I have to figure out how to make ends meet, if I'm making two jobs, for example, or three jobs, this is is just not relevant, right? So I want to ask you something. What role should or can technology play in, in helping more Americans figure out their long-term financial well-being? Um, it, it, is that even feasible in your mind? Yeah, that's a great question. I'd love to hear everybody's answer to this too, because 
like I think all my answers on this are like, I don't know what you call this, like guesstimates or they're just opinions, right? Guesstimate opinions. So I'm guessing at my own opinion. Um, I think one thing is, you know, Americans, though, for all the challenges that are out there, if you take the positive side, um, we're probably living in the best time to be alive that we've ever had, even across the planet. I mean, um, there's a lot of bad stuff going on. But, you know, a lot of bad stuff has occurred throughout the history of humanity, too. And it's, you know, I think sometimes we think it's unique, but, you know, global, globally, right, it's the least violent time to have ever been alive. And we might not feel that because we feel we can see a lot of violence on TV, the, you know, the war in Ukraine. But globally, it's still the least violent time ever to be alive. We live the longest and, you know, we're arguably probably the happiest that we've ever been as a race of people, too. So there's a lot of positives and a lot of that's been because of technology. Uh, I think that technology does have that challenge, though. We were talking about it before the recording. Like, I don't know that it's always positive. There's there's pluses and minuses and there will be pluses and minuses when it relates to financial wellness, too. Uh, you know, I think that technology can do some interesting things, tracking your spending, automating spending and investing. It can help you kind of probably take a lot of the stuff that cost more money historically because it was a professional service and democratize that access to planning out is I'd say we're still super early on that. But that is going to happen. Right. Like the technology will be there. It will occur you know, how fast it occurs, though, you know, I think it's still up for debate, but it's probably coming sooner than a lot of people expect now. Uh, so I like I'm kind of bullish on I think technology will continue to improve people's lives. But there is a balance. And, you know, I worry about things uh, like, you know, chat GPT and a couple of the other apps that are out there now doing really interesting things. But I have similar concerns about those from deep fakes um, and videos and you know, online trolling is also super bad now. And you have a lot of depression in young children at schools due to bullying. And that's a, you know, not that bullying didn't exist before, but now it can exist also in a more scaled manner and a more like hidden manner. So there's a lot of negatives that can come about. I think that we've seen probably in the last five years, a, a lot of uh, probably, and I'll use the term loosely, but like the crypto space, there's been a lot of fraud in that space, I mean, for the decade now. And that's, you know, we've had people commit suicide due to fraud there, right? Like, it's not something that's, you know, tens of thousands of people, but it is still occurring. And so there's a lot of pluses and minuses. Overall, I think right now is a very good time to be alive. I think that technology will help democratize advice and get it out to more people. Um, but it probably is going to be, you know, well, I'd say adoption is probably going to be slower than the technology getting out will be. That's probably my take. I do think the technology is not super far away. I think adoption of it, though, will be a lot harder to gain. I'm not sure on the original question, but like to add on to some of what Jamie was saying, about the pluses and minuses, I think one of the things that I've seen maybe really even more acutely in the, in the past couple of years is that um, like the rapid pace of change of technology and combined with our interconnectedness on through 
technology, like social media, but others as well, where we can sort of see how things are in, you know, other places and how other people are presumably doing, but really just what they're sharing online, which is not always accurate, is this is this is hard for me to like articulate because it's more of a sense that I haven't written about or talked about a lot. But I feel like for a lot of people, their um, am- ambitions have or goals have changed to be loftier and maybe unrealistic. And I think it sets us up for less happiness uh, when we see um, like the rapid amount of wealth that came from the crypto, what at the time did people did not realize was a bubble. Everybody wanted to get into crypto. Everybody wanted to be, you know, making so much money and And then similarly, not just money, but you can see it also like with all the studies about um, women and girls and social media, there's all these filters and people put in, even without filters, if you're aspiring to be like, if you live just, if you live a normal life and you have a family and, and, or you go to school and, and, or work or whatever, and you're aspiring to look like somebody who is a supermodel because that is how they, that is the genetics they were born to and they spend their whole day and life you know creating this aesthetic because that is their job when you like tie your own happiness and aspiration to an unattainable goal it's really um can be very demoralizing and so that so I see it both on like the wealth and the aesthetics and sort of, I guess it's the um, the same thing we've always had, but it used to be keeping up with the Joneses, like the next door neighbors, but the next door neighbors, like you see them, they're real people and they're more normal. And you probably saw them when they had tough moments too, instead of just the like, you know, striking it rich with a penguin NFT or whatever, right? Um, and so I went I with like the, that. what's that? I went with a llama NFT and it just never took off. Sonia. <laughs> yeah. So I have for the, I don't know, maybe past five, 10 years really be, been focused on enough defining enough. And for me, that's brought a lot of personal satisfaction, figuring out what's important to me, um, without as much as possible without outside influence. Now that is not possible. You can't live your life without outside influence, but trying to figure out what my enough is and working towards that has been really helpful, especially when I was working in the investment industry where everybody's always like the goal is just more. There's not a there's not a fixed goal. It's outperform last year. Make more than your benchmark. Out, you know, do better than the the guy sitting next to you. And that sort of that sentiment, the like, per, like always searching for outperformance, that feels like it. This this um, sensation that I felt when I was in the investment world, I can feel it more outside of the investment world now. The always searching for more, and there's just there's really no satisfaction in in an unreachable in striving for an unreachable and 
goal that's always moving higher. So that that's my sort of like negative take on the on the technology. There's definitely been good parts, but I think we need to temper it with um, I don't know, spending more time with real people and with ourselves, figuring out what's really important to to us. Comparison's the the thief of joy, right? Well, I had it written down as you were speaking, we are enough, exclamation mark. And I think that is an important point to hone in on because you see online, oftentimes is not the real life that people have. And that's the one thing I always tell my kids. And they say, oh, you know, look at this YouTuber. That's all they do the whole day is they spend the whole day playing games and, you know, they got so many views and that's what I want to do when I grow up. No, you don't. Because of that one person that you see, there are so many, so many, so many others that can't make it work. And what's next, right? You got a million views. What's next? Two million, three million? Like, you know, when is it enough? And is this really what you want to do for the next 40 years, 50 years? Um, so there are a lot of hesitation, I think, new first world problems that we have with tech. But I will say this though, because I do want to end it in, in a positive note is if it's not because of technology, Sonia, I would not have met you. That's and true. if I had not met you, I would not have met Jamie. And the three of us will not be sitting here today and talking about Jamie's first and second book. And also um, to, to hear from both of you what is important in life. So that's the one positive thing that technology was able to do, at least for myself. I know it's all about me today. <laughs> abso- absolutely agree with that. And I use technology in my work and the, the interconnectedness part is so great sometimes. And we just have to be careful to temper it with reality. Yeah, right. totally, totally agree. And I, I, um, Jamie and I met through technology as well. So happy to, ha- certainly happy to have that part. See, one day, We'll need to although in real life, Sonia, I still have not met you. Although no. I did know about Jamie through paper before technology, we were both listed in a um, like a forty under forty list that happened so long ago that I they actually got a physical copy of it. <laughs> I have, I have it too, but I didn't know Jamie then. But I recognized his his name later because of that. Wow. Yeah. I have seen you at a conferences though too. So the um uh the TD one right before the world shut down, I saw you that that one, which you have that great photo with Danny from that one. Yes, yeah, we met we met that happy hour in person, but I knew you from like social media. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well then well, here is have, a wonderful twenty twenty three, right? Yes, well, indeed. I, I do have a comment about the one because I've had this conversation with a lot of people. Um, you know, I, I suffer from a lot of the stuff that Sonia talked about, and she knows that, uh, the, uh, chasing that. Um, so I'm not a great spokesperson in the sense if you're going to do what I do. But what I will tell you is a lot of people online, because I have this conversation a lot, and they're like, oh, I don't do enough. Um, like, I'm not successful enough. And what tends to happen is I see people compare themselves to the universe of people online, not even just like one person who looks really good. So like you compare yourself against the the supermodel model, you know, athlete on physical. And then you also look at somebody who's in your business. That's the top rated person. 
And then you look at somebody else with that made $2 billion in crypto. Then you look at somebody else that's over here that's a great cook, like Chef mm-hmm. Lauren O. Look at somebody else that's like, you know, and that has a great family. And then you're like, oh man, I'm not all of those things. Well, that is the best part of like 19 different people. Like there mm-hmm. actually isn't a person like that. Like that was their best thing. That's what they're showing you. Like they're probably not good at nine other things that you're better than them <laughs> and that they can't do. And that you do you do create this comparison against the universe online. And I see that happen a lot. Um, and I, I think that, yeah, one that we definitely have to watch out for. Um, I don't need, think you need to compare yourself against anybody else, but especially not against the universe, right? Like you just, you, you have to realize that you are, because I think you said, like you're enough and that most of what you're seeing isn't real, especially when you aggregate it all together. I like that. That is. I had not thought of that before. Yeah, it's super yeah. interesting. That that's exactly what I'm going to tell my my kids when they come home because that that seems like <laughs> a constant conversation. Oh, look, so and so did this. So and so, yeah, but they're not the same. So and so, that is. You know what? I learned something new again today. So thank you. That is the life lesson of Jamie and. Maybe I should just call the episode that life lesson of Jamie Hopkins. <laughs> but thank you so much for your time, Sonia and Jamie. This is wonderful. And I, hope, I do hope to be able to do this in person because Sonia, I know you and I missed each other at least twice. Um, yeah, but I am coming back to California soon. So I will hopefully try to. This time around, third time is a charm that we can actually meet up. But um, thank you so much both for joining us on the show today. And for the rest of our audience, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of One Vision. We'll talk to you next week.